0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Rebel City Podcast. Um, This week we are talking with Douglas Stewart, author of Shuggy Bane. This has been the latest in a a recent series of books that we've covered, mostly because in isolation and furlough I've been reading books. Um, This book is phenomenal. Um, I don't think and i'll say this through the episode a number of times that i've never personally sort of resonated with a book that spoke to the time and place that i grew up in this book um 80s and 90s glasgow and um, poverty addiction trauma but also hope um alongside the violence and the struggles that the people at glasgow had in those times douglas really beautifully captures what makes glasgow special and how its people stand up and remain hopeful and remain you know together in these sort of tough times. Um, I couldn't recommend it highly enough and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Cheers guys.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. Um, This week's guest, we're very, very privileged to have Douglas Stewart. How's it going, Douglas?
2: It's going great. Thanks for having me, you guys. Not at all, man. It's really nice to meet you.
1: Absolutely. What time is it in New York? Uh, Right now it's 10 o'clock in the morning,
2: so uh, I've been up for a couple hours writing and uh, now I'm talking to you guys at home.
0: Excellent. That's a good start to the day. Um, Well, hopefully it is anyway. Um, (laughs) So, generally speaking, as we, as we get started, um, we kind of usually just throw open the first couple of minutes just to let the guests kind of introduce themselves in their own terms. So, um, I don't know if you might just take a wee minute to say hello and let folk know who you're, et cetera.
2: Oh, yeah, that's a big question, right?
0: Uh, <laughs> no, it's a bit like first day in a new <laughs> job, isn't it? Like,
2: exactly. I'm a Gemini, I like long walks on the beach, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i Douglas Stewart, uh, I'm sort of uh, talking to everybody right now about my debut novel Shuggy Bain, uh, which was published just back in August. It was actually published in February in the States. But I'm Glaswegian, I grew up, I was born and raised in Sighthill Hill and then all throughout the East End. I went to secondary school down in Pollock uh, at Crookie Castle, uh, but for the past 20 years I fell in love with an American, so for the past 20 years I've been living in New York. Uh, so that's almost half my life now. But uh, I was working on Shuggy. I actually am a knitter by trade. Funnily enough, I got a degree in textiles, which is right. <laughs> dead gay. and also dead Scottish, uh, and so I, I'm a knitter by trade. But I started writing Shuggy uh, ten years ago, uh, and sort of working on that book in that way because I didn't. I'd always wanted to be a writer as a kid, and we can probably talk about that a bit more later. But um, it's just been sort of a long road. And I I didn't write Shuggy with any like great expectations of it or any, even any sort of desire to get it published. Truly, honestly, I wrote it for myself. um, And I wrote it just as this portrait of uh, the Bain family who are this uh, working class family in Glasgow uh, in the 1980s and who are sort of coming apart as the city around them is starting to come apart. I am the sort of the queer son of a single mother Um, And my mum, even from my earliest memories, really suffered with a drink. And then when I was still a kid, she died of it one day. And so I think a lot of sort of what I was writing about or trying to sort of put on the page was to write about Glasgow from a slightly more feminine perspective, which sounds weird because I'm a man. But obviously, you know, there's such a huge literary canon of West of Scotland giants. And but I'd always sort of been in a part of a world that was about mothers and single mothers and women suffering with addiction, and then being gay myself, um, sort of felt very isolated from from other men in a way. You know that wasn't a, wasn't an easy thing to be in the early '80s. You know, it wasn't yeah, super. Mm. But, but anyway, so that's who I am and and where I'm at. But I don't know if that covers it.
0: No, no, absolutely. I mean, we we, we do have a, a few questions as we go about. You know the. The woman at Glasgow, because that is something that really does jump out at you, and it was something that, looking at it as a, a male writer, it was quite surprising because I don't really have a lot of memories of, you know, extremely well-written women by men. If you follow me, so it was something that really resonated with me, and we'll, we'll touch on as as we go through it. Um, I can you can answer my first question was that was to kind of say to you. If you were going to throw a percentage on it, you know how much of this would you say was was autobiographical? But I think, you know, you, you've you've kind of covered that already. So um...
2: well, the, only, the only thing I would say about it, uh, Matt, is it's definitely drawn from real life, but I wouldn't ever present it as a memoir. It's a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I started writing the book, it really quick, like I sort of wrote it from the feelings of what does it mean to be poor and to love someone who's suffering with addiction but almost within the first couple of chapters, it's dwarfed anything I could ever know about both the characters and the time and the place. You'll know that the book sort of spans, uh, I think about 30 years and even goes yeah. back to the 40s. And so I just there was no way I could write it as a memoir or even just look at what a sort of eight-year-old boy would know about the world, because actually I didn't even find Shuggy, even though he's the heart of the book, the most sort of com- like compelling perspective. I wanted to hear about all these characters. And part of that also is how you are, how you want to write about a working class story, because everything you go through is a collective experience. I felt as a kid, I never always, I never really felt it was something that just I went through by myself or my family went through. I knew everybody was going through either a tough time and and the way you sort of share those. And so that really quickly just meant it could never ever be a memoir. Mm -hmm. Of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not your first 40 into
0: writing, but the the book you've, uh, Am I right in saying you've written previously for The New Yorker um, and you've had a lot of creative endeavours as well? So I was quite interested to see what it was that drew you to the the novel format having been a
2: success in other sort of creative disciplines. Yeah, actually the novel was the the first thing I wrote. I'd been writing sort of for myself in secret for many years. And it wasn't really sort of, it didn't need to go anywhere. It didn't need to be shared with anyone. I just found huge amounts of comfort in just writing these scenes or these vignettes. But the novel Shuggy was the very first thing I wrote. The actual, the short stories, I had two short stories in the New Yorker this year, but I wrote them after um, I wrote Shuggy And they are sort of, they're not related to the book, but they're kind of like in the constellation of the book. I think even though, um, you know, Glasgow still is such a formative part of me, you know, I don't think you can grow up in a city that says, Uh, empathetic and uh, loving and compassionate, but also challenging and a bit dangerous and a bit sort of uh, oppressive at times, and have that not sort of form your psyche as a writer. And so these other stories sort of come from that, sort of um, come from that. But, you know, I was working in fashion. I mean, uh, I live in New York. I was working for some big American brands, but I'd always wanted to be a writer as a boy. Um, But my education was so disrupted by What was going on in the neighborhood around me by sort of what was happening in pollock at the time by my mother's addiction by by just a lot of things just the pressing needs of life i suppose and so by the time it came to sort of choose a path in life it was just seen as something like boys like me couldn't do and Mm -hmm. so instead i was sort of sent into textiles which was great because here's a not an academic thing but it's very artistic and it's a trade-based thing And, and you know in 1992 scottish textiles were still on their feet they weren't yet on their knees Um, Like a lot of trades, they are now, I mean, they're not in a great position today, but yeah, I went into textiles and that was a great thing. But really writing was about sort of furloughed dreams for me and trying to sort of come back around to it.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I've spent years playing music and I remember having a conversation with my dad Mm -hmm. where he actually tried to talk me into taking a management position at McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, other than like pursuing my dreams of like playing music for a living. Um, do you think that's something that's kind of like prevalent in working class communities? That's sort of defeatist attitude of like, no, maybe you should go down the route of the McDonald's management position rather than playing your guitar in your room. Like that seems like, no, put that down, don't do that. Do you think that we're kind of like almost like hamstrung before we even begin if you want to be a creative from like a working class background? Yeah, I definitely think that's true. but. I think it's
2: also sometimes done with their best intentions at heart um i think for certainly for me they wanted me to succeed here was a kid who didn't have any parents who at 16 was sort of you know i have siblings but you know you can't anchor your whole life around your brother and sister and so i had to go out and find my way in the world and so the teachers were trying to like turn me towards something But you're totally right and I mean I just read Deborah Orr's uh, Motherwell last week which is a fantastic book if you've not read it yet but here's Deborah Orr that went on to be this huge academic who went to be on this Guardian, uh, this journalist that ran the Guardian in London and her mum and dad she wanted to go to St Andrews University and her mum and dad were constantly telling her to lower expectations not because I don't think they didn't believe in her ability but because they wanted her to you know we live in such a realistic city and you know we're faced with realism all the time and so they didn't want us didn't want her i think to be disappointed and then she was sort of dissecting that um phrase you know what's for you won't go by you and we use it a hundred times a day as glasswegians As my dad's catchphrase <laughs> <laughs> I
3: can't
2: well, even hope. if i had a pound coin for every time somebody said it to me you know and it's in a way it's meant to be like a good thing, right? It's meant to be like don't worry too much about it. If it's meant to yeah. be, be But she was like, actually what I take from it is is don't sort of aspire for better because yeah. if it's you know, it's kinda of like a limiting thing and that's like a weird thing to have as a almost as a national phrase, you know? Um and so you've gotta yeah. But I think you're right.
0: It should probably be emblazoned in Latin underneath, of, like the lion rampant or something like that. <laughs> <seems> <laughs> like. Above um, Hall. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll probably just um, move a wee bit onto the book because we have covered a few books recently. It's been a, an absolutely brilliant year for Scottish literature. Um, We actually, for once, we've we've been chasing the First Minister a bit in terms of our book recommendations, but I was actually reading Shuggy before Nicholas Sturgeon this time, so (laughs) (laughs) um, we got ahead of the trend on this one, so we did. Um, I think the first thing that struck me and when I was talking with Paul prior to this today, like the imagery of the book, um, being from Glasgow, still in Glasgow ourselves, like we have been here as the city has kind of modernised a certain degree, and a lot of things that are looked at, you know, critically in the book have have changed in a lot of um, extents. But the imagery was something that it actually took me back, really, sort of viscerally, to the Glasgow in my youth. Um, I think when we were, I was reading the scene where they're taking the taxi by the Royal Infirmary um, when uh, Shug Seniors in the chip shop. Uh, talking about the flat and when Agnes is out sunbathing. I mean, I, I used to walk by the Sight Hill flats,
3: <laughs> back and
0: forth of town regularly, and yeah. I, there was times when I genuinely felt like I was like a nosy neighbor, kind of like ear in on stuff that was going on about me rather than actually reading something. That how, just how familiar it was, and it brought back memories that I, I just had let go of, this, this older Glasgow. Um, the first one I kind of wanted to touch on was that I get the impression, and, and you did mention it earlier on as well, was that you you seem to remember Glasgow is quite a violent place, even up to and including like multiple instances of like sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've still somehow managed to like convey a level of warmth and affection in the writing, and like that's just got to be a pretty like tightrope to walk. I mean, how do you even go about conveying the horrors alongside? the actual beauties of the city? Like, Where, where do you start with
2: that? Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I like had a big plan at the very beginning of it. All I wanted to do was write a really intimate story. I didn't even intend to write a political story or a story about poverty or about the change of the city. I just started with a nucleus of that family. But growing up poor and in the East End, I knew a lot of violence. I mean, it's, and I think when you, your mother is suffering with drink, <coughs> excuse me, I think when um, women are especially violent, especially vulnerable, then they're really sort of vulnerable to violence. And so I grew up seeing a lot of it. And, excuse me, um, I really sort of, life for me was all about sort of, I think when you don't have a lot of money, you don't necessarily get to control all of your experience. And things sort of happen very much cheek by jowl. I always knew the sort of the saddest moments to actually be the funniest moments you know it's that phrase you know a Glasgow funeral's a better time than an Edinburgh wedding that sort of thing and that (laughs) some of that is part of the Glaswegian spirit but I also then use sometimes the most sort of violent moments to be the most intimate because you have to almost bring whatever warmth or whatever love or whatever Um, sort of hope you have sometimes to a situation and place it right in the center of it. And so it was always that sort of juxtaposition. What I knew I didn't want to write about was just to write about violence on its own or about sadness on its own or any of these emotions because sometimes I don't feel like they're uh, worth very much in isolation. When they get really interesting is when they're butted up against other things that sort of contrast it. So, um, you know, when we look at these really peaceful moments in the book and these moments of hope, there is an ominous thing that's sort of swirling above it. And then even within the darkest moments, there is this sort of like very faint flicker of hope. And I like that sort of um, contrast between them. And I I just knew that to be life, you know, you have to kind of like plow on with what's ahead of you. And and I found as a kid, some of the saddest times were also the funniest, um, you know, and I think that's, that's the Glaswegian spirit sometimes.
0: I can definitely agree with that. I mean, in terms of, Reading through the book, I mean, I've got to be honest with you, I I struggle to think of a time where I've sort of personally connected with a book as as much as I have with this one. I know we've had other great Scottish books along, you know, even like the young team, you know, there's stuff that was relevant to our lives and that, that maybe Paul and I are, you know, 10 years beyond now. Train spotting again, has loads of stuff that as a Scot you can relate to, but again, that Edinburgh setting had a a level of removal for us. Um, Whereas with Shuggy being like, this is both when and where like, Paul and I grew up. The the biggest one that jumped out for me in terms of like where it was then to where it is now um, is the, the sort of Catholic-Protestant divide, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that I like because it's prominent in terms of... It's, it's there throughout the book. It's part of the, the general sort of conversations that go on. But never really explains, you know, why it is how it is in the book. And, I, and that kind of resonated with me because when I grew up, I lived in a city where a large proportion of it was othered to me, but <laughs> nobody ever really sat down and explained to me why. Now, with all the like, sort of myriad of stuff that's in the book, why was it important to
2: include this? And that's a brilliant question. And actually, it was important for me to include it in a way where I didn't explain it to people that didn't grow up in the city. I get asked that a lot in uh, the States especially, you know, what is it? Tell me about it. And I thought to myself, Well, I wasn't really writing it for an American audience. I was writing it for people who understood it and who'd lived through it. But sectarianism was a part of my life. I came from a mixed religion family, Catholic mother, Protestant father. And so sometimes, you know, know, my grandparents didn't go to my mom's wedding um, because they were very staunchly Catholic. And this is in, you know, the 60s. And so they just didn't go to their only daughter's wedding. And this is like a really telling sort of indictment on where people are. And so sectarianism, or at least sort of the, the divide between Catholic and Protestant, was a daily part of my life. And even later, growing up in the East End, I grew up in, a, in an East End in a house in a state that was predominantly Protestant. But then I would have to go, you know, chuck bottles, chuck bricks, Fight across the Royston Bridge to the people on the other side. But then I would be going home to a Catholic mother, you know? And so it almost didn't even make sense. There was a senselessness to it, too. Um, but the Orange March and the, you know, the Big Lambeth Big Drum were a part of my childhood. And I just wanted to put it there as a note, almost like a strata of the city that is a part of everybody's sort of daily existence. But I found that when I wrote the book, I knew what it felt like and I knew how it would make people feel. Like I knew how it made the characters feel. But then I didn't actually understand the origins of sectarianism. And I think that's also fundamentally quite Glaswegian as well, right? You just live with it, but you don't ever like get to go back and look at the sort of the Irish immigration or the Reformation or like really study it and really understand what sort of Catholic immigrants did to the unions at the turn of the 20th century. And so I found I had to go back and like, you know, I knew I could describe it perfectly, but I didn't know why it was. And, mm-hmm. and I found a lot of that in Glasgow, not just about sectarianism, but a lot of, things that we do in our life. Um, we just accept it as what's in front of us, you know, and this is how it is here.
1: Yeah, what type of reaction do you get when you try and explain the Glaswegian sectarian divide to people in America? I'd be quite interested to hear, um, because we, we must be one of the only cities on the planet that's got such a massive Irish Catholic presence that doesn't celebrate St. Patrick's Day, for instance. We're not allowed to have open St. Patrick's Day parades, whereas in New York, it's a massive event, like it's huge. So, yeah, what type of what type of response do you get? Is it just like disbelief? It's total disbelief. But then, what I found,
2: and I couldn't figure out why it was, and I thought it was actually the Scottish outlook, was they didn't. We were we don't really tell our own story overseas very well. So they weren't very aware of like sort of sectarianism at all. But then also the tough time that Glasgow went through in the eighties, they didn't have any idea that. Uh, Unemployment went up into the twenty percent so that people were really struggling, and I think part of that is, um, I think part of that is, is we don't like to talk about poverty or a tough time. We're a very stoic people, and you know we don't we don't believe in exceptionalism. You're not exceptionally great, but then you're also not exceptionally hard done to. because everybody's got a sad story, and so when I talk to audiences out here, they had no idea that the city went through such a tough time, or that it goes through sort of sectarianism, or or that's that that happens. But They do have a very clear reference for Northern Ireland out here. And so when I say, you know, if you imagine that Glasgow has the second biggest orange walk after Belfast, that sort of starts to sort of pin it for them and and give them a bit of a sort of context. But um, I find that our story, I don't know what it is. It just, it's not very well
1: known uh, around the world. Our collective story. Mm, Yeah. I think that that's something that we're seeing a lot of just in general, just now is like people start to really share. The stories of their cities and countries as we get that information online, and people really start to speak, especially in the mental health side of things. It's like we need to start talking about these things. And I think we, even when I speak to people, um, in the podcast or just outside podcast, and we talk about what went on in the schemes, a lot of the violence, the sexual violence, the just the having to watch your back on a daily basis. You would get mugged if you didn't take care, if you didn't watch out. It. it people are just like, did that really happen? It's almost like a sort of stereotype that people are like, yeah. I don't think that that was real. It's just something that people just sort of play on, but um. it was absolutely real when, when I was growing up anyway, for sure. Well,
2: absolutely. Totally. And I think, like, I didn't realise it at the time when I was writing the book, but I think, like you say about sort of mental illness and things like that, I was just writing the book and through writing it, I was sort of healing in a weird way. It was hard to look at a lot of trauma and whether it was violence or addiction or... Or, you know, or misogyny or homophobia, whatever it was. Um, but by the end of it, I felt sort of like, oh, at least I've been sort of honest and I've been able to put something on the page. And I think it does come along with that thing. I never, as a kid, I never got to, you would never let anybody know you didn't have much in the house, you know? And pride is a big theme in the book um, about how Agnes as a character doesn't ever sort of like take her poverty or her addiction outside the house. She always is done up in her hair and her coat and yeah. you know, she's dressed her best. But then you would never tell anybody you had a parent suffering at home. You know, that was a shameful thing as well. And especially as a son of a mother, you know, you would never the last thing I think any boy would ever do was I say something bad about their mother, because you just it's just something we're conditioned as young men never ever to do. And so there was a lot of sort of hiding things as a kid for me. And so in writing the book and just being honest about poverty, being about, you know, my struggling mother, about all these other things, was was healing. And I think it's only recently we are allowed to talk about things. Obviously, addiction has roots in mental health issues. It has um, roots in poverty. And so we it's only recently we can face up to that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I
0: think as well, was when you are saying it, was, it was, was quite difficult and, and you know, kind of like cathartic to kind of go through, like on, on the other side of the, the coin, like, you know, I was saying to you prior to starting to record, like I, I, I'm literally in Germiston right now where where Agnes was born. Like I can see the, the gas towers, my, my granddad, Used to walk me around them in my pram when I was away, and um, like I come from where she comes from, I grew up in a household with parents who drank excessively. Um, without ever really, they were functional. There was never any either issues that Shuggy faced in the book, thankfully. But again, this was how people in their day and that time essentially self medicated in all respects. Yeah. like. It was it was it was quite a different given the resonance for me it was quite difficult to read in a lot of places Knowing in the sense that i wasn't enjoying it it was it's a beautifully written book but like how real and how close to the Glasgow the yeah. that we grew up in made it like emotionally quite difficult to get through in places like is that something that has has come up elsewhere or is it just something that maybe our closeness to it is bringing out in us
2: Aye, that's exactly it. I think think everybody's got a sort of different lens of it and now it's sort of in the hands of the readers in a way and it's people bring their own perspective to the book, you know, and some people sort of see it just as absolute fiction and they can't even imagine the world and it's just a million miles away and then there are people like you and I and a lot of people I know that have a sort of personal relationship with the subject matter. And so it's just been sort of, um, all I really, I think because I didn't ever think, I honestly didn't think the book was gonna be published. And when I sent it out, when my agent sent it out for publication, it was rejected 32 times um, before a publisher, somebody brave stepped forward and said, you know, we'll publish this. Um, and so, uh, but they didn't know how to market it was one of the reasons given behind it. Um, they just didn't know, especially here in the States, cause I live here. They didn't know who the audience was for a, like a Scottish book about Um, about what was going on in Glasgow in the 80s. But it's not really just about that. It's about love. It's about hope. And it's about how children sort of rally around flawed parents. And it's about, you know, women having their dreams dashed and not having options because it's about a lot of things that are universal. Of course. Um, But I only wrote it about, I just tried to be as honest as possible because I honestly never thought it would see the light of day.
1: Mm. You feel what that maybe gave you, because we speak a lot, we've spoke a lot with... Guys like James Allen, from Las Vegas, Graham Armstrong himself, um, spoke to one of her friends, Kevin O'Reilly, who's a composer and a musician about like how the the sort of thinking mind can just kind of get in the way of your creativity that like flow state is this sort of ideal way of like producing art or producing um creative projects. But do you think because you never thought that it would see the light of day that really you were writing it for yourself that that gave you a lot of room to just really let it flow out rather than getting caught in thinking, I wonder what people think of this, is this going to be too harsh for people? Or do you feel like it was like a real organic sort of process for you? Totally was.
2: And actually it it took a while to get started on it because I kept feeling sort of like it wasn't very good. And I was very feeling sort of, I had an imposter syndrome and why am I writing? Who am I to be writing anything? But probably about a year into, or six months, maybe not as much as a year, it just started, I, felt, I found I couldn't stop it, but at the same time I did something where I never ever imagined it would be a book. I never allowed myself to think I'm going to have something that was finished and the book actually came, or what became a book came out in sort of uh, chapters that weren't in chronological order. So actually the very first chapter I wrote is in the middle of the book, it's chapter 13, it's Shuggy with his big brother Leek and they're going over the sea lag. slag. And then I wrote the next chapter, maybe it was seven, then I wrote 24, and then I just I took it as it came to me and I wrote it as, uh, I didn't want to resist it, right? So you're talking about flow state, and I just didn't want to get in the way of it and try and mold it into a thing that I never knew it was ever going to be. And so when I did that, when I gave the book power over me rather than try to have power over it, it came actually pretty quickly and pretty easily. And the first draft was, I tell everybody this, it's true, um, was 900 pages, single spaced. Um, and the book you've got in your hand, for comparison, is about 450 pages, double space. Uh, so the first thing, there was like so much about Glasgow that I wanted to write about. Every single character had an arc, and even the chorus of characters like Jinty or Eugene had a backstory and a consequence, and were bringing something <laughs> to the, the social moment. And so uh, I just got out of the way of the book and just wrote what I saw. Mm-hmm. that's cool i mean the, the the notion of chorus was
0: actually something that i picked up on when i was putting questions together um we we'll, we'll start because it was about how again women and the glaswegian women are really prominent in it but i think we'll we'll maybe just start with with agnes at the minute if you don't mind like um i think it would be probably quite fair as you say to maybe even say that agnes is at least in parts the main protagonist of the story even though it's named for sort of young Shuggy. Um And you've used the term sort of flawed, she was deeply flawed um, and again it's almost again word for word exactly what I've got here which is quite telling. Um, <clears throat> I kind of see a similarity between Agnes and the way you've portrayed Glasgow um, in the sense that she is someone who has a lot of troubles uh, in terms of drinking, in terms of relationships, and obviously, you know, kids that kind of went away for and over time eventually escaped. But she's also presented in a really sort of sympathetic way in the book that I really, and again, growing up in a house of drinkers having had issues with drink myself, like, I found her so sympathetic. Like, I don't know how that comes for this flow state that you talk about, like, where I don't, how, how do you naturally make such a complex character both, you know, negative in terms of their characterization but also you know sort of positive and sort of likeable but it's i don't see how it can be done unless it's actually deliberate you know so when you talk about that flow state it seems almost impossible to me in that respect like what was what was the motivation when you were when you were writing Agnes where does does she come from
2: well you know i never saw we often talk about Agnes as an alcoholic and i never ever saw her as an alcoholic I saw her alcoholism as a state that a person was in and so before she's that she's a mother you know she's she's a woman that grows up in the 50s and 60s when uh, you know she probably didn't stick around in education she thought getting married would be a good thing to do for her own sort of sexual advancement and also because you know being a wife and a mother and having a house and raising a family was sort of what was an option for women in those times for Glaswegian working-class women. I was reading even Deborah Orr's thing, and it, when she went to university in, uh, in 1980, uh, only zero point zero point zero point zero zero three percent of university students were from the manual classes, she called it. And so that's just not even on the radar for Agnes. But then as the sort of the 70s and the 80s come in and you start to see sort of feminism gain a rise and women starting to take more control or have more options in life, It's also a bad place for characters like Agnes and other mothers like that to be because the poverty just doesn't allow them that it's too late to you know I had a conversation with an American publisher here who was like be great if she went to like evening school and sort of went and got a law degree and all of that and I thought well you just don't understand the time of the book at all Um, yeah yeah. you know gentrifying your story (laughs) yeah like and I'm like this is not a place that this book can be published like you just don't understand it she can't have an Erin Brockovich moment because that's just not something that mammies in the 80s had access to. No. Um, And, but I, you know, so the reason why I could write Agnes and all the characters in that way is I, even when they were suffering with drink, I tried to remember them as a whole human being. And Agnes is, you know, she's a beautiful woman. She has, at the beginning of the book, she's seen as um, having these really exhausting wants. But it's not that she wants too much; it's that the world around her isn't giving her enough. You know, she wants right. very realistic things. She wants her own home with a front door, council house, no less. She doesn't ask for a big private house. She wants, you know, clothes that she can buy for her kids without getting them from a catalogue. She wants a husband that adores her. She wants maybe a couple of holidays at the caravan a year. You know, she doesn't want much. She wants very realistic yeah. things. Uh, but it's but still, the world can't provide that for her. And um, but she's a you know she's a full person before she is before she comes to the drink. She's beautiful, she's proud, she's industrious, she's funny, she's generous. She's got a really lovely circle of women friends that she has a big Minaj party with up in the Sight Hill Towers. Um, And then she's also flawed and know very well. And, you know, so she's a, I just always tried to think of her as a full person. But I think writing a 900 page first draft allowed me to love everybody first. And even people that are really bad bastards, like Big Shug, is unlovable, I think. But actually, I tried to love him, right? I tried to think of him as this Masonic guy who was, everyone says he philanders his way across the city, but actually he doesn't, he's shagging, and he's treating women atrociously. Um is far too nice of a word, but um, yeah. I just tried to love them before I put them on the page, because I thought if I didn't love them, then I would manipulate them in a way, and I wanted not to manipulate mm. them that way. I don't know if that yeah, makes sense. Such-
1: so uh, it makes complete sense to me Absolutely. as well because I mean as we, we've spoke to people about like adverse childhood experiences how like we're moving past that sort of alky junky stereotype uh, mm-hmm. more into what's happened to these people what are the experiences, so we can understand and prevent this for future generations of people and that's like amazing that you've managed to sort of encapsulate that not just like in the book yeah but also in the way that you've tried to like write the characters yep. so who read the audiobook uh angus king read the audiobook uh because he called home. it menage <laughs> and <laughs> every time he said every time he said it, i burst <laughs> out laughing because i was just like it's menage like it's just menage. i was yeah.
2: no <laughs> menage like, <laughs> know, maybe it's from the east coast we'll we'll let him away with it uh no it's the menage uh I definitely um
1: <laughs> I sorry i had,
2: had this no, that's brilliant. So, um, in terms of the other woman, hi. like obviously
0: we've touched on Agnes and then we'll, we'll go back through some of the rest of it as we go. Um, like, I, I felt like a real, like, just general reverence for a Glasgow woman in the book as I was reading through it. Um, we have young Shuggy's pals in chapter one <clears throat> talking to him, and you know we then have, as you say, the sort of catalog and card party up in the high flats where they're all exchanging their bras and there really is a a sense of like community. Um, And then as it goes on, um, as they show up in the the sort of pit scheme, um, there's this, and this is where the the notion of chorus came in because I was almost, as she met all these women in the pit scheme, it was almost like some sort of Greek theatrical chorus that she'd sort of run into. Um, And it's not something that's really reflected in the, the sort of men of the book, like as you say, Shuggy Senior is uh, just a mad shagger and you know, he it has is, it is <laughs> quite hard, quite hard to like. Um, you know, Agnes's first husband feels almost about kind of like a, bit a passenger in his own life in a lot of respects and like none of the men in the book seem to have the same level of community that the women in the book often experience, even though sometimes that experience is negative. Um, What is it you're you're trying to say about Glasgow Woman? What is it you want people to take away about the woman of Glasgow in the
2: book? I think I, I... Well, first of all, my entire world was women, so I was just drawn to that in that way, meaning, like, my life was with a single mother, even the AA characters that would come around the house were all women, and there was a lot of single mothers, right? There was a lot of women who... Were done with their marriages by the 80s and didn't have anywhere else to go, and so they were raising their wings on their own. And so that was just a universe for me, um, in my own personal experience, and then also my rejection by other boys and men. You know, by about the time I'm six or seven, boys just decide I'm too effeminate, I'm too poofy, and they just don't want to sort of play with me. And so all my friends were girls, and just my entire Glasgow experience was girls. But then I keep reading all these Glaswegian books, and that's about hard men and detectives, and you know, even Agnes Owens, who's a who's a female writer, writes about Mac, who's a man. And so I never really sort of saw that world that I that I actually knew reflected. And I thought if I started to write about sort of constellations of men in a way, really quickly you could write, I mean, obviously you can write so many books about that. minors striking, ranks of taxi drivers, all this thing. But it's it's been done and it's maybe been done by better writers than me. And so what I wanted to do was just really keep the lens on women and, and what they do. And even Shuggy's experience when he, You know, even Shuggy, who is suffering with a mother, um, with his mother having addiction at home, we keep coming out and seeing these other girls who are suffering the same thing with addiction, whether it's the character of Annie or the character of Leanne, because it's also a reminder that um, there is this sort of underground network of a lot of kids who were going through the exact same thing. And a lot of parents, it's just, you didn't always see them because we kept it at home. But I've always known women to be the strength of Glasgow. And that sounds like a glib, like a bumper sticker thing to say, but it's true. I mean, I've always known them to hold their wains together to like have go out and sort of make a better future for everybody. And it yeah. was a tough time. Glasgow was a, um, was a patriarchy, right? We sort of anchored everything, at least when I was a kid, around the Friday night wage packet, around football on mm. weekend, around drinking at the weekend. And so in a lot of ways, women were sort of, you know, sort of buffeted around by that. But I never knew that, I just knew them to be strong in their own right. And yeah. to survive under that is like remarkable. And so yeah. how would I not want to write about that?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's another one of the, the parts of the book that really resonated with me because I grew up, mm-hmm. um, you know, down in Hag Hill with a gran and eight, you know, six aunties who all had 2.4 children each. And, you know, my gran's house was this communal place that was entirely dominated by women. and was one house of several hundred on walter street that were in the exact same boat so i think it's something that really like rings true in terms of that perspective and i think because we don't see it an awful lot in in glasgow literature like it really sort of jumps out and and is, and is something that i really enjoyed about the book
1: yeah yeah why do you think Glaswegian women put up with so much shit, right? Because like the they are per- they, I mean, I think about my granny, she had like my dad used to say, she had like shovels, so if she hit you like your head was spinning, uh-huh. like for sure. But they they put up with the guy going to the pub on Friday night and coming back with half his wage packet on the Saturday. And but I why? Why did they do that? Like why did they know like Put the foot down like they did with their kids like these were really like like matt was saying sort of like really strong women that put up with so much stuff like violence as well as like poverty sometimes it was kind of it was their man's fault that they were living in poverty because he would go like we're saying he, my dad i remember my dad coming home at midnight on a friday night and screaming up the stairs for my mother he came down and like almost carry him up the stairs when i was like really young um, but i like why do you think they put up with it? why did they not just like kick back i think i i don't i mean that's a big question it's a brilliant question
2: i think it was all about sort of um the options they saw outside of it i think we didn't allow women in that time to think they could have a life of their own neither sexually nor economically nor sort of hobby wise even just in a sort of a in a in a in a different way and so a lot of the women in the book that i write about sort of You know, they go into like having a home and having a family and having a husband that they marry because that is their, that's sort of what they saw their own mammies do. That's what society will allow them to do, you know. And when we don't even, we're talking about what people thought about me as a young man and I'm a man. And so imagine that sort of like multiplied a hundred times the pressure on what we must have thought about young girls at the time and what should be open to them and what they can do in life. It must have been buckling. And so then when sort of society starts to fail a wee bit in the 80s, and you've got all these single mothers and really fierce grannies and all these women that have put up with men all these years. Um, you know, it must have been a terrifying time and like a really sort of, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned from a kid was there was so many women that thought, why the fuck did I put up with that? Like, why did I like hitch my wagon to this man that wasn't worth very much? And then the sort of the tide comes out and they're left alone with it. And so um, that was like, I think that must be a terrible uh reckoning in life right to sort of you know it's a terrible thing even when you put your entire fate in someone that you marry even as a man i'm married to another man but i would never dream of putting my entire like life in his hands i've got to be a person on my own i've got to go out and get fulfilled and i don't think we allowed women to do that i think they put all of their fates and all of their lives and all of their you know waiting for a wage packet to come into the house even if they had wee jobs um in a man and then imagine like living like that that must have been terrible for them
0: I would mm-hmm. think so as well, to be like... And he, then for he, the
2: pastor to left his horn to you as well after all that, he, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and actually I was reading the Deborah Orr thing and, like, I was reading... It's a beautiful book if you've not read Motherwell because it is written from a woman's perspective about... It's a, it's a play on the word Motherwell the town and then mothering well, right?
0: Yeah. Because
2: mm-hmm. so I've seen in that where, like, Deborah's mother just says to her, you know, uh, you're expected to have sex with your husband even if you don't want to. Like, it's just something you've got to do. And Deborah can't, like, wrap her mind up. She's like, what do you mean? Like, where's my sexual fulfillment? Where's my wants? And she's like, no, no, it's not like that. Just do it sort of thing. And even when I write about sexual violence in the book, I wrote about it in a way that sort of there is no recourse for someone like Agnes to say, oh, wait a minute. I didn't want my husband to do that to me. I didn't want that because yeah. the truth is, is there was an obligation there, right? And I always remember hearing about that as a kid, um, just sort of mother's joke. And it was kind of like, it was a very sad joke, but it was a you know it was a because there was a lot of truth in it. But just like oh, I got to get him off my back, so I'll have to have sex with him and do all this. And there was like a thing in that, um, and to hear Deborah re- Deborah or reinforce that was really sad. Yeah, definitely. I think
0: um, you, you also touched on you know your husband there. Um, one of the things that. One and again try to be really careful not to talk about too much of the plot of the book because we want obviously, people <laughs> to go out and read it. But I <laughs> nah, like there was a, one of the really beautiful like bits of writing and, and the book for me was when Shuggy kinda like quote unquote got his first dolls and it was the the tenants girls and it kinda painted both how Shuggy was different but also what Agnes was going through. Mm. Um I mean it is a very, very different time now um, mm. in Glasgow and everywhere. In, in that respect, but like obviously, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you took some of this feeling, personal experience, growing up in Glasgow as you know that queer, different sort of thing. Yeah. Like, what was what was that like? Because I mean, it's it's so different now that it's an almost alien concept. When I read back, I was like, you know what? I, I do remember how difficult it was for people at school people in this scheme who were in any way, shape, or form different, never mind whether it was sexuality or anything else like. Mm-hmm. What was, I mean, I don't know if I'm, how, if, if I'm framing this right, but I mean, what was what was it like for you in that respect? Why it was important to include it in the book?
2: Yeah, it was, it was really important to include it in the book because I also didn't want it to be a story about just us looking at Agnes feeling isolation. It's not just about this mother feeling alone. It's, I wanted them both to be a sort of unit that are sort of marooned together, that sort of like highlights then the love that sort of they share. They're almost their, each other's only sort of solace, right? Yeah. But growing up gay, in the first of all, I have to say, I think there's people that grew up gay in Glasgow in the 80s and had a great time. I think they probably all lived out the West End and I think they had to, like, it was all right for them. But you no, know, on the East End, it, it wasn't that great. And then I also have to just say, I think there's probably still people growing up gay in Glasgow that are having a terrible time now. We yeah, tend to absolutely. be a queer community think that progress is even and progress hits everywhere and because we see it on telly and we see it in pop music that everybody's having a great time but i live in new york and one of the biggest charities i support here is about kids that are turfed out of home by their parents when they're discovered they're queer and there's far too many kids that are suffering for that in the most liberal city on earth so i know there's still people in glasgow suffering i have to say that but in the same way i wanted to write shuggy not? i didn't like I was more sort of worried about writing Shuggy in a way because I didn't want him to be seen as just a gay person or a gay character. Because actually, in the same way as Agnes, he's everybody is a whole person, right? This is just yeah. a facet of who you are. And like the other thing about writing about Shuggy is, I was going to sort of like at the beginning think about it in sort of explaining it in very grand terms, but I always knew homophobia is quite direct. It was just why are you, why do you want to be like a wee woman? Why are you effeminate? Why are you poofy? And then you would get slapped for it. It was never sort of like wrapped in sort of like religious dogma or like you know you're going against God and are you going against Christ. It's like it was about violence from one man to another man. And even actually sometimes women were the most homophobic people I'd ever known. Um, but it was just about sort of it's it's almost it's almost misogyny by another name, right? Why would you mm-hmm. want to be this little feminine thing? And and so you would just get slapped for it. So it was a lonely thing for me as a kid. Um, it was scary, a lot, because uh, there was a lot of violence that came with it. And it was also something I could never get out from underneath. You know, when you grow up in a scheme, as soon as something's perceived about you or it's your business, then you never, I mean, 12 years, 14 years, it will stick with you the whole time. Like, there's no reinventing yourself if you can't, like, move away. And yes. that's a lot about what the book's about as well, right? Agnes and Shuggy are on this sort of pit scheme, and they, they can't, like, get out from under what other people expect and think of them. And that's, uh, you know, we know that to be true.
1: Definitely. Mm-hmm. Is that what you did yourself? Do you feel like that you left Glasgow to reinvent yourself to get away from, like, the stigma? I think so a wee bit. I think um, I was
2: just so untethered. Uh, meaning, like, after your parents die and you're a young man, like, what is holding you anywhere? And so there wasn't anything, you know. And Glasgow never let me rest as a kid. It never, you know, you know I couldn't play football. I couldn't sort of drink with the boys on a Friday. So there was no place for it in me. And then also um, sort of growing up gay. The saddest thing for me, actually, that happened to me as a kid was after I left Glasgow, I had kids that I went to school with that would like reach out to me and be like, I was gay as well. And so there was not even any, and I'd known them for like six years, 12 years, whatever it was. And being it mm-hmm. seen me, me maybe getting slapped about or lamped. And there was no way that they could ever sort of like accept themselves or say me too. Or it just wasn't a place for that. It was all about otherness in the 80s, you know, in all kinds of ways, uh, you know, and you just weren't allowed to be the other or else you were isolated. Yeah, mm-hmm. something that Absolutely. we're getting dangerously close to and
0: just general society at the minute as well, to be honest with you. Um, something that we should learn the lesson for the 80s and 90s and actually be more conscious of the fact that we don't other people. But unfortunately, yeah, it yeah, doesn't seem to be the world that we're living in at the moment, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah me and matt were talking about this before we could before you, you joined the call that so, try and think a question about like the the parallels between glasgow um or just the the working communities of the 80s like sheffields glasgow motherwell being a big one as well when they de-industrialized they seen this aftermath of poverty and violence and addiction mm-hmm. and we creeping Back towards that, it seems to be that the violence in 2020 seems to go in the way where we're seeing a lot of suicide. And but just wondering what your thoughts are on that as we like sort of do come out, like go back towards that sort of horrible age. Do you know what I mean?
0: The state of the economy leaves us at serious risk of going back to that time again, I think,
2: in some respects. Oh, totally. And I think, like, I think we have to not leave men behind. I think oftentimes when I talk about the book, I'm expected to sort of talk about these are things that men did to women or to gay kids or that heterosexuals did to straight people. And at the end of the day, I think our society is often set up where we hurt men first and then men sort of pass that hurt on uh, to everyone else. And, you know, a big part of like writing the book for me was therapy, like I said, because I had no way to express or let my feelings out. Um, other than through my creativity and I'm grateful for my creativity but I grew up in a time where men were expected to be a very narrow way you know you had to be masculine you had to be hard you had to be hard first if hardness was needed you had to hit people before they hit you and not every man's like that and so when we don't allow like a full spectrum of masculinity or um, and we're not even talking about sexuality we're just talking about like men being allowed to be different types of men even books were like mm-hmm. a really risky thing for me as a kid even to say that i wanted to study english was a is a weird word to say on the streets of the east end of glasgow and so mm. um like we you know so we have to first of all acknowledge the damage we do to men in order to like then stop the damage we do to women and to kids uh it's not a thing that exists in <laughs> so i can understand why men turn to suicide in huge numbers i can understand that and I can also understand how we kind of feel like we're leaving them behind in society because we do tend to blame men because I think a lot of it starts there, but then we blame them without offering help. Something you had said earlier was interesting because we we a lot of time there's a lot of pressure on working class writers to tell a story in a particular way. Like as a middle class narrative, you can write about anything. You can write about we boys being taken in by the priesthood and then sold into sexual slavery. You can write about women being used as wombs. You can write about women being locked in basements. And you're never sort of condemned for writing about the ugliness of the world because it's seen as fiction. But when you're writing about a working class narrative, you're almost, there's a burden placed on you to tell a really happy or a positive story or to uplift the whole class. And the mm. truth is it's hard enough just to write a story. So to then yeah. have like all these other burdens on it is unfair. And is some, is a way we sort of penalize uh, working class writers.
0: Yeah. Um, I think this is something I actually seen quite recently on, on Twitter. I don't know if some of the actual local um, or the sort of authors that live in Scotland still, I'm pretty sure somebody tagged you in it as a joke, where that somebody had made a comment about can we have a, a Glasgow novel that's no about misery and poverty <laughs> and blah 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 and it, it leans directly into that, But you're saying where there's an expectation, uh, like grittiness or whatever it happens to be, that I think we should be able to move beyond there. Um mm-hmm. <coughs> so excuse
2: me yeah, true too, but then my answer to that is that guy should feel totally free to write any book he wants to write, and exactly. he's just telling everybody else what they can, what they can, and can what
0: they can. Yeah, he's no, he's no gatekeeping here. Um, one of the other things, and as we've touched on, obviously Agnes, the women, the men in the book, mm-hmm. and Shuggy, um, Shuggy's siblings was one of the things that I kind of wanted to mm-hmm. touch on briefly, just as we're, I think, we're heading towards sort of wrapping up. Um, it feels as though having done a wee tiny bit of reading about yourself that the three siblings are almost some sort of like approximation towards your own experience where obviously Shuggy covers the the sort of queer element of your personality and Leek is very artistic and the sister is somebody who kind of emigrates and goes elsewhere and parts of your own sort of personal story that I, I found you know, again quite similar there. Um, is that fair? Is that something that was done deliberately? Is it...
2: I think as a writer you always start with what you know and then see what it takes you. You're always sort of, you're always drawn from your own life even if it is lived experience or not. The only thing I would say is I definitely have really supportive siblings but the characters in the book are not reflective of them at all. Mm-hmm. In fact in a lot of ways the character of Leek, uh, the brother, who is this sort of very artistic creative boy but He's older than Shuggy, and he's offered to go into Glasgow School of Art and he sort of turns down that offer to get away because he can't leave his brother with his mother and is just too worried about them. So stays at home, brings in a a YTS wage uh, to sort of like keep them both on their feet. Um, And in a funny way, he's almost the ghost of Christmas future of myself. I think as a kid that grows up with an addictive parent and a parent that suffered from addiction, I'm always, you know, you're always wondering about the paths you never took and you know i ultimately never got a choice because my mother died of her addiction but i often reflect on well if she hadn't i'd still be by her side i'd still be in glasgow there's no way i could have believed i would ever like have left this woman because i loved her so much yeah and so leaking away is me writing that sort of consequence right it's a it's about me writing uh what happens if you sort of put your own life to the side in order to save somebody else and that's the story of the book, right? How far will you go to save the person you love the most before you have to save yourself? And that's what you see all three of the siblings have to reckon with.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Um, I think we'll, we'll be cover the elephant in the room. Um, obviously, you started out with a book that you said was for yourself. Um, you know, we've got through it. It's dynamite. But we're not the only people that seem to have picked up on it. It's You're now Nominated for several, like very prestigious sort of writing awards, um, is that something you could have ever expected?
2: No, <clears throat> I could never have expected that. I'm so grateful for it. I mean, I can't. I'd be lying to you if I said that doesn't feel brilliant because it's it's such a it's such a powerful thing. And but I never. I mean, I never expected it. I, there's no way to sort of um, even think that way. I was so excited just to have a book published. And then it was published in February and then the pandemic hit two weeks later. And for a debut novelist, everything just swallowed, right? Nobody can see you, nobody can find you. And so I was mm-hmm. kind of grieving in a wee way. I was like sort of um, just accepting what was happening and sort of trying to get on with my life. And so, you know, I'm as surprised as anybody to be on these lists, but I'm so grateful for it because uh, it just helps the book find readers, I think. I think that's the that's the real power of it.
0: I feel like it's a sort of vindication of the process because as you say you had thirty two knockbacks before anybody decided they had a means to publish it. You as you say, you've walked straight into a global pandemic when other publishers already had doubts about how they were going to promote it anyway. And now I it's it's up there as you know, potentially one of the books of the year.
2: Uh you know, I tried to think about it in a wee bit more personal terms. I think it's a really nice uh, accolade, and it it sort of makes uh, it sort of makes gold out of trauma in a way. I think about my mother losing her life. I think about all the women that I grew up with who lost themselves to addiction, and I think of it more in those terms. I think to be recognised for the Bukhara in that way is some kind of silver lining to all these rain clouds, you know. And so that's what I try to try to sort of focus on. I think that's a really beautiful way to look at the yeah, contribution absolutely. they made to your life. I think so, and like you know, it wasn't like they were ever voiceless because, by God, could these women roar! <laughs> like, yeah, you could hear them from the other side. Uh, but like, but you know, we didn't like to listen. That's the real truth, and especially when women are failing in that way, we have a really tough time as society of sort of like facing it. And mothers are meant to be infallible, and that's just not a realistic expectation. And so, the yeah. book for me, the MBA for me, I hope is just a wee bit to say, look at what look at what this is, and you know and hopefully they, whatever they're watching from, they can take a wee bit of joy in that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. Um, how are you finding it second time round? So normally at the end we'll do about what's next, and you were saying that you were writing, so are you starting your second novel, or is it more uh, shots for like the New York Times? Or
2: Yeah, actually I'm really uh, pleased to say that uh, my second novel I think you're gonna be hearing about pretty quick, uh, it's another book, it's gonna be set a bit later in Glasgow, but it's going to be this big sort of um, hopefully a sweeping gay love story set on the house and schemes of the East End. Two boys that are separated by sectarian territorial gang lines and uh, I'm just excited. I've been, I'm st- I have I'm, think as a writer I just always want to write about love and connection and trying to find a sense of belonging. So um, I do believe we're, I'll be able to tell you more about it in about a month's time. Wow. Oh, amazing man. And a how's that process story, went? Course.
1: Well, Process. Yeah, to...
2: you know, funnily enough, like, um, this, I actually had written a lot, the book right now has the title of Lock Off, um, and it's, uh, I'd written most of it before I'd even signed for Shuggy, so when I tell you I'm writing for myself and I was doing all of this in isolation, it is true, and so by the time Shuggy sort of um, attached to a publisher, I'd almost written most of Lock Off, and so I'm plowing on with some other things on the on the far side, thinking about book number three and all of that, but... But Lockall still, for me, I don't know how people will perceive it or take to it, but for me, it still has that sort of written in isolation feeling, I did it for myself. So, uh, mm-hmm. I think it you sounds know. really interesting so, in the same, in
0: the same kind of sense where Shuggy has looked at women from a different perspective to other sort of more traditional Glasgow novels, like a gay love story across the sectarian divide in Glasgow, is something that I would definitely be interested in reading. So, yeah. best of luck. Mate.
2: Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I was thinking about, when I was writing it, I was thinking about like the pressure we put on boys to man up. We talked about like the narrowness and what we sort of we expect men to be and and what happens when you've got a gentle or a sensitive boy that just isn't in his nature and yet we, we expect sometimes this sort of like uh, intense violence from him or this intense masculinity. And so that's just what I, I had wanted to do. But also in writing Shuggy, we leave Shuggy on the brink of manhood. Shuggy so never sort of expresses his own sexual desire or his own romantic desires because his entire love is his mother. And so I was left sort of feeling like, ah, oh, now I just want to write about what it means to be a true young man in Glasgow at that time. And so that's where the book came from. I'm definitely, and you've you sold me on it.
3: <laughs>
1: for sure. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.
3: Douglas, okay, thanks very everybody. much
1: for your time, um, oh. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk to you, man. Um, and yeah. the books i mean i had a moment walking along the kelvin walkway at six in the morning it was pitch black where I, I literally like had tears in my eyes just listening to the book and just thinking back to every character in the book just brung somebody real for me into my mind for yeah. the past and i think that that's why it's been such a success and i think that the when, I, when you said there about like a, a book about uh like sectarian divided gay relationship, I was thinking there's going to be so many people that will be loving that story and be waiting for that type of story um, in this city and beyond where um, it's been almost like restricted or taboo for Mm -hmm. them to even like just live their life. So I can't wait for that man. But congratulations on Shuggy and congratulations on all the awards because it's well deserved it's a fantastic book and i hope everybody that listens to this goes and buys it or downloads it and listens to it whatever way that they want to consume it but yeah thanks Absolutely. very much It's has been to
0: echo that. Like it's been we've been on a, a wee sort of book trajectory in recent months and this is something that you know we've, we've looked at and talked to some great authors and like you're in totally comfortable company like this the book is something that is just Aye, I, I, I said earlier on, I, I've never resonated personally with a book the way I have with this one um, and I really hope that your success continues to grow and, and we see Mary again, We will welcome back anytime, man.
2: man. Oh, thank you so much guys, it's been brilliant to talk to you today. I've been stuck here for the past eight months so I'm feeling heavy homesick. So as soon as I'm back, let's have a pint, but thank you. Aye,
1: excellent. Sure. Thanks very much Douglas, cheers.
3: The cause when all but fear is lived to die. You tell it like it's fantasy, something that you're never going to be. Same old story every day, there's just one thing that If we believe if we trusted you Then I don't know why you say the things you do You'd see a whole new way to be Giving honest answers are not those lies to me City halls now filled with echoes of their past. Honest stars, they lived each day like it's their last. You tell it like it's fantasy, something that you know. Every day That's just one thing Nice to me. And I can tell that you're on a mission just to break the walls down time and time again. If it wasn't true, would it be okay to break? Down time and time to me